So we continue in our time together this morning. It's my privilege uh, to uh, open God's word for us together. And so I invite you to grab your Bibles out or whatever form they may exist in. And as you're doing that, I simply want to start with this question. What is doubt? What is doubt? The dictionary defines doubt as a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction. Have you ever dealt with doubt? Have you ever known someone who seems to doubt lots of things lots of the time? How did you handle it? How do you handle it? Second question, what is faith? What is faith? Dictionary again, complete trust or confidence in someone or something. I don't know if you could take any two things that seem uh, completely opposite ends of the spectrum and draw them together, but that's exactly what we're going to do today. Because faith and doubt actually connect in our spiritual journeys. And they connect in a very important way. How does that happen? I'm glad you asked. We're going to look at that today as we continue in our series, Compassionate Interactions. And the story we're going to look at today is from John 20, 24 through 29. So if you want to start turning there. And this story that we're going to look at today is the story of Jesus appearing to Thomas. Now, how many of you immediately, when I said Thomas' name, immediately the thought that flashed through your mind was, oh, doubting Thomas? Be honest. Put your hand. I know. Okay, yes, we do it. Hang on to that thought. Because I believe that even though doubt might be a nuisance at times and we may not have the most positive view of it, I believe that it is an important and necessary part of our spiritual journey. And this is something that I think is important for us to be aware of as we interact compassionately with others in the world. And so the question for us today is how did Jesus, how did Jesus respond to Thomas's doubts? And what does that mean for us? So what is this story that we're looking at today? So just a little context as we get into the story this morning. Um, obviously, uh, Jesus, uh, this happens after Jesus was crucified and, and died and he was buried. And of course, now Jesus is alive again, yay. Um, and so uh, John chapter 20 starts with Peter and John racing to the tomb, uh, the empty tomb, but they don't actually encounter Jesus. And we see that in verses one through 10. Uh, we then read in verses 11 through 18 of chapter 20 that Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, uh, reveals himself to her. And then in verses 19 through 23, Jesus appears to the disciples. Uh, let me just add here that uh, the disciples were also very skeptical about Jesus' resurrection uh, when they were first told to. And it wasn't until he appeared to them and opened their eyes and their minds of un- to understanding, as it talks about in Luke 24, that they truly understood what had happened. So that then brings us to our story today. So I'm going to invite you again to stand with me as we read God's word from John chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 24. And it says, Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, Put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. 
Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And John continues, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father, we come in these moments together, and we come because we want to hear your voice. We want to hear you speaking to us, challenging us, growing us, um, and continuing to transform us into the likeness of Christ. So Lord, in these moments, would you give us open minds and open ears, uh, open eyes even, and open heart to receive what you have for us today. Spirit, would you speak to us? Spirit, would you speak through me? And Spirit, would you speak to us exactly what we need to hear today in our journeys with you? We commit this time to you. Our desire is that you and you alone are honored and glorified and the attention is squarely on Jesus. We ask it together in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So who is Thomas? Who is Thomas? Well, he's one of the 12. Well, yes, beyond that. Uh, who is Thomas? Uh, well, Thomas, uh, we know, is a twin. How do we know that? Well, because his name, which appears Thomas, uh, also, and this is also called Didymus. Uh, Thomas was the Aramaic version, and Didymus was the Greek version, and they mean twin. Um, so he had a twin. We don't know whether it was a brother or a sister or anything else about it, but we know he's a twin. Other than that, we don't know a lot about Thomas. Uh, the scripture doesn't talk a lot about Thomas. Um, it lists him as one of the, the 12 in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, but we don't know the circumstances of, of Thomas coming into Jesus' uh, circle. We don't know the circumstances of uh, uh, Jesus choosing Thomas other than when he chose the 12. Uh, we don't know how Thomas became part of that. The scriptures just don't speak to us. Uh, and Thomas doesn't appear a lot in the New Testament. He doesn't have a starring role in stories like Peter and John and some of the other ones. Uh, but there are three stories uh, of, of, of Thomas, the one of the ones being the one that we just read, that I think give us a little bit of insight into his character that I think will help us to understand why this story matters. So the first story uh, where uh, Thomas has a speaking role, so to speak, uh, is John, in John chapter 11, uh, which is the story of Lazarus dying. Uh, Jesus receives word about Lazarus being sick, his friend, uh, brother of Mary and Martha, and the invitation to come, and uh, Jesus says, you know, we're gonna go, um, and disciples aren't too happy about that because you know people in Judea tried to stone Jesus previously, but they had to go back to Judea where Bethany is, which is where they live, and so disciples aren't, uh, uh, aren't keyed in on this, even though Jesus says this is important. And so in verse 16, after they have this conversation, Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. So in Thomas, we see a couple things here. We see a little bit of pessimism. Uh, I mean, let's be honest, there's a little bit of pessimism there. Uh, we see, I think, a tough-mindedness but I think more important than that, and we often focus on that, well, we die with him, but look at what he says first. He says, let us also go. And I believe that Thomas displays a commitment and a loyalty to Jesus. If Jesus is going, Thomas is gonna go too, even if there's a risk of death that comes along with that. So that's the first instance we see of, of Thomas. Then, of course, that story, we could talk all about things, but that's not the purpose of today. Uh, second time we see Thomas with a speaking role uh, is during the Last Supper in John 14. And uh, in John 13, we read about Jesus washing the disciples' feet, uh, predicting his betrayal by Judas and his denial by Peter. And everybody's like, oh my goodness, what's about to happen? And so Jesus in John 14 says, seeks, I believe, to, to bring some comfort to the disciples after he's laid some heavy stuff down. 
So he tells them not to be troubled, that he's going to prepare a place for them, and that where he's going, they're going to be able to come too. And Thomas? Thomas is perplexed. This doesn't make sense. How can we know? (laughs) How does this work? He says, and he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? This doesn't add up to Thomas. It doesn't make sense. Uh, You just told us we know, but I don't really know, and so how does this actually work? Um, And of course, uh, again, I believe that reflects Thomas's desire to be with, to stay with Jesus, um, and again, that little bit of skepticism and perplexity of what's exactly going on here. And of course, Jesus responds, and this really has very little to do with today's sermon other than I love this verse, with one of the core truths of the faith. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Except I guess it has everything to do with every sermon that's ever preached, so there you go. No charge for that one. Jesus responds. So we see these instances of Thomas. We see little pictures of his character. Uh, We also know that Thomas is with with a group fishing in John 21. Uh, We know that Thomas is waiting in the upper room in Acts 1 for the Holy Spirit. And then there's a story from the second century that Thomas was actually sent to India that, that grew out of the second century, that Thomas went to India as a slave of an Indian merchant. And while he was in India, he actually founded the Christian community there. And to this day, the Mar Thomas Church in India maintains that they are descended from this group that Thomas started. So up to this point, uh, we see Thomas. Thomas is is a supporting character. He's not playing a primary role. He's not playing a flashy role. He's not playing a marquee role. He's a supporting character in the Gospels up to this point. But I believe that this supporting character is about to have his breakout role. He's about to have his breakout role. And so as I, as I think about this and I think about Thomas and I think about what we're about to look at, I wonder sometimes if the reputation that Thomas has as a doubter or a sullen skeptic is really fair. Is this really a fair characterization? Could it be that we have perhaps have misunderstood Thomas as a person and the significance of his role? Because let's be honest, most of the times when Thomas comes up in our conversations, it's not in a positive connotation, is it? What do we say to people? Don't be a doubting Thomas. It's a backhanded compliment to people. It isn't a word of encouragement. <laughs> and it certainly isn't encouraging to Thomas. Is there something we've missed about the importance of Thomas's role? Well, let's see. Again, we know that Thomas wasn't with the other disciples uh, when the first time Jesus appears. We don't know why he was there. Was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time? I think it was probably a little bit more than that. Um, we don't know. Perhaps he, again, he was perplexed. He was troubled. Uh, he was sad. Um, he was shaken. He had fear of what had just happened. And so he withdrew. He withdrew to spend some time by himself. Now, we don't know when he got back together with the others, whether he went and found them or they came looking for him after Jesus appeared to him, but we know that they got back together because the disciples tell him, Jesus is alive, we've seen Jesus. And how that verse is written, it indicates that they did it repeatedly. It wasn't just, hey, I've seen Jesus, let's go get some hummus. It was, Jesus is alive. No, Jesus, they worked hard, I believe, at convincing him of the truth of this. But Thomas wants proof. 
Thomas wants proof. Thomas wants the same experience that the other disciples had of Jesus appearing to him and seeing the nails and the, and the hole in his side. And, and he says he wants to touch it. I really can't imagine the fun of sticking my hand in someone's side. That just sounds kind of gross to me. But uh, still, you know, whatever works for Thomas there. Thomas wants proof, though. How does Thomas know, think about this, how does Thomas know that in their overwhelming grief and fear, because remember, they're hanging out in a locked room because they're afraid of what might happen, that it wasn't just a manifestation, but it was actually really real that Jesus was there. So Thomas wants proof. And again, I want to caution us about being hard on Thomas in this moment. Because remember, the disciples themselves didn't believe when they were first told When Mary Magdalene came to them in Mark 16 and said, Jesus is alive, they were skeptical. They didn't believe. And this wasn't some random woman who just happened to pop in off the street. This was Mary Magdalene. She was in Jesus' inner circle. Disciples knew her. They had done life together. And yet they didn't believe either. But now Thomas is with the others. And Thomas is with the others, and Jesus appears. Jesus appears. And the cool thing about that is Jesus didn't have to do that but he appears. So how did Jesus interact with Thomas as he appears? Well, in verse 26, it tells us Jesus came and stood among them. And when he came and stood among them, it wasn't about the other disciples because he'd already done that. It was very much about Thomas in that moment. It was about Thomas. And so what do we see in Jesus as he compassionately interacts with Thomas in this moment? I think there's three things. First of all, we see that Jesus was patient with Thomas's doubts. Jesus was patient with Thomas's doubts. Again, Jesus didn't have to appear a second time, but he did, he did. Jesus knew and was, was aware of Thomas's doubts and his skepticism, but I believe that Jesus was also aware of Thomas's openness. Well, Pastor Chris, how do you know he was open? Because Thomas was present, <laughs> he showed up. He was there waiting. And so Jesus met Thomas where he was in his seeking. Jesus met Thomas where he was in his seeking. And Jesus, in that moment, as he appeared in patience, invited Thomas to do the very thing that Thomas said he needed to do to believe. Now, did Thomas actually do it? The text doesn't indicate that he actually followed through on that, but Jesus did invite him to touch and stick his hand in his side and and feel all around there. Here's the thing I hope that we get in this moment is that Jesus' patience with Thomas is the same patience that he has with us in our journey and in our doubts, even if it takes some time. Jesus is patient. The Lord is patient. The scriptures paint this picture of the depth of Jesus' patience. Uh, in 1 Peter 2.23, talking about Jesus, uh, during the crucifixion, they hurled their insults at him. He did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was patient in the moments of mocking and torture and abuse and insults and death. Later on, Peter comes back again to this theme of the Lord's patience in 1 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus was patient with Thomas. The Lord is patient with us. And in his patience, Jesus did not write Thomas off for his doubt or skepticism. Secondly, Jesus brought peace to Thomas' doubts. 
It's safe to say Thomas was conflicted in that moment, wouldn't you think? Thomas was conflicted. He needed peace. And he found that peace in Jesus. Jesus appears among them and he greets Thomas, the disciples, with peace be with you, which was the same way he had greeted the disciples when he appeared them in, uh, the week before. And I believe Jesus greets them this way, not only because it was the standard Jewish greeting, it would have been the normal way for them to greet each other, but it also, Jesus is again declaring the hope we find in salvation itself. In salvation there is peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. But I would also offer that that greeting also perhaps was to lessen the fear Let's be honest, if you're in a room, the door's locked, the windows are closed, and someone's standing among you suddenly, are you gonna be afraid? Yes. I'm gonna be afraid. Even if I had seen it before, I probably would still be afraid because this doesn't happen, this is unusual, this isn't how this works, but here's Jesus in his, I believe, the expression of, a, of his glory, and there's gonna be fear. <laughs> this is unusual, this is not normal. A man who was all the way dead, not just mostly dead or kinda dead, but all the way dead, is now alive, standing in the midst with a locked door, and he didn't kick the wall down, he didn't come in through the window, he didn't shimmy down through the roof of the chimney, he was there. Peace be with you. And in that expression of peace, not only do we see Jesus addressing probably the fear that was going on at that moment, but also we see that Jesus is not condemning of Thomas for his doubt and skepticism. You know, and maybe it's my bias and I can own that. But as I hear in my mind Jesus speaking these words, I hear him speaking these words in peace, with kindness and compassion to Thomas. Not with irritation, not with annoyance of having to go through this again, but with peace. Inviting Thomas to touch, to stop doubting, to believe. He was not harsh in that moment. Thirdly, we see that Jesus was present in Thomas's doubts. Jesus was there. Jesus showed up with Thomas and the disciples. And again, it wasn't a manifestation, it wasn't a vision, and it wasn't an apparition. It was the bodily reality of the risen Jesus. He was there, real, physical, and I believe that that presence of Jesus in that moment, it was definitely more than those of you at home or seeing me right now, and it was even more than our presence with one another in this room. It was a powerful presence of the risen Lord. He came among them and was present in that moment. And with his presence and with peace and with patience, Jesus responded to Thomas. Jesus responded and he challenged Thomas to stop doubting and believe even if Thomas didn't have all the answers he was looking for. And I think in that moment, I don't think Thomas actually needed to touch Jesus. I don't think Thomas actually needed to touch Jesus because in that moment, he knew. He knew. Have you ever had those moments when you just know? You can't explain it and it doesn't make sense, but you just know. Thomas knew. Thomas knew in that moment who was standing before him that the resurrected Lord was real and that he had been foolish. And so in his recognition comes belief and declaration and worship. In verse 28, he declares, my Lord and my God, not my Lord and my God, our 
I think you're Lord and God. He says, my Lord and my God. There's a reality that comes with that, and that is an astonishment. It isn't a surprise, but I believe that in that, there's that confession. And we see in Thomas in that confession the expression of the high point of the gospel, that moment when someone embraces who Jesus really is. Thomas did what Paul would later write about in Romans 10, 9 through 10. You declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Everything, everything Jesus is was acknowledged in that moment by Thomas because faith always results in worship. Thomas simply declared, my Lord and my God, but he could have just as easily said, oh Jesus, you are the word of God, God the one and only, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, Messiah in Christ, Rabbi, Savior of the world, bread of life and living bread, Holy One of God, light of the world, I am the gate into salvation, good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the way, the truth, and the life, true vine, friend, oh Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Amen? Amen. Amen. So why does this story matter to us? Why does this story matter to us so? Because I believe in this story, it speaks to the very heart of belief and faith for us as humans. Throughout his gospel, John, the author of this book, seeks to explain Jesus' deity. And Jesus, uh, John lays out his premise in the framework that we find in John 1, 1 through 18. And throughout the course of the book, throughout these chapters, these 20 chapters, 21 chapters, he traces not only the development of the unbelief of the crowd that results in Jesus' crucifixion, but he also traces the development of the disciples' faith, which I believe is culminated in the story with Thomas. Because even though there's another chapter after this one, the story, this story, this story of Thomas is the period on this book. And so in response to Thomas' worship in verse 28, after seeing Jesus in the resurrected flesh, Jesus affirms Thomas' belief and he blesses those who would come to believe and have faith without actually seeing the resurrected body of Jesus. Verse 29, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. This blessing is significant to us. This is, a, this is significant to us. One of the sources I read put it this way. It says, the blessing comes to all who believe on the basis of the proclaimed gospel and the evidences for its validity. Believers living today are not deprived by not seeing him physically, Instead, they are the recipients of his special blessing. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed without the help of a visible bodily manifestation to them. Belief and faith matter, church. They matter. John 3.15, everyone who believes has eternal life in Christ. 1 Peter 1, 8 through 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Hebrews 11, 1, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is about belief. 
believing in the risen Lord without actually seeing the risen Lord. But in the same token, doubt is real too. Questions exist. I mean, think about it. How can we not have questions when you stop to consider the vast wonder and omnipotence of a living almighty God? There's gonna be questions that come with that, or is that just me? I don't know. His vastness it defies thought. If you think too hard about it, sometimes I feel like my brain is gonna explode. God is so big. There's questions, questions exist. How can questions not exist when so often the gospel and faith are characterized as mysteries, particularly by the Apostle Paul? Belief and faith matter. Doubt is real. And doubt and faith actually go together. Has anybody ever had chocolate-covered bacon before? How do you have two completely different opposite things, the wonderful, meaty goodness of bacon and the decadence of chocolate? great by themselves. But I tell you, if you've never had it, put those things together, and it's like a flavor explosion, a taste of heaven in your mouth. It is amazing. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. <laughs> Doubt and faith, completely opposite. They actually go together in our spiritual journeys. And the question of faith and doubt comes down to this. When is what we know greater than what we don't. When is what we know, church, greater than what we don't know? And I believe this is the point Thomas came to. You see, doubt isn't a bad thing. It can and hopefully does lead to faith and belief, but only when there is honesty, openness, pursuit, and space to explore. Thomas was honest about where he was in the process. He was open to having his doubts, his skepticism answered. He showed up. But he also realized his doubts weren't the real issue. It was all about faith. The reality of risen Jesus as Lord and God is a proven reality. It is captured and recorded in the pages of this book, showing the Father's deep love for us, his creation. But the risen Lord is also proven true by the testimony of transformed lives, Lives that no longer walk in the flesh, but they live in the love of Christ and in the fruit of the Spirit. Things, friends, that are not possible without the presence of Jesus transforming lives even yet today. Should Thomas have believed the testimony of the others? Probably, yeah. I mean, these weren't random people. These were his brothers, his sisters. They'd done life together. They knew each other. There was a trust there. He had a relationship. But for some... The attitude of just believe, just believe, is a little harder. We don't need to be afraid of doubt. We don't need to see doubt as the boogeyman of our faith. And we certainly don't need to write someone off because of doubt. Sometimes the questions of life are really big. Sometimes they're smaller. We've talked in the context of spiritual things today, but questions can exist about spiritual things, about theology, about Jesus, about identity, about purpose, about our place in this world, our purpose in this world, which really are all spiritual issues anyway. Sometimes we have doubt because unexpected things happen in our life that we weren't ready for, and we never process those things in the context of our faith. But doubt isn't bad, it's not wrong. 
But how can doubt turn to faith? How does doubt turn to faith in our own life, in the lives of our friends and our family, those we're engaging in gospel relationship with? I think there's two things that are important. Number one, the truth of scripture. And number two, the power of testimony, especially testimony in relationship and community. So if you have questions and if you're searching, those things are okay. Those things are okay. If you have questions or doubt, it's okay. Acknowledge them. Not just to the Father who knows them anyway, but to biblical, loving, spirit-filled disciples who love you. And I recognize in saying that, that for some of you in this room, you probably may have been in a situation where you've tried to express doubt in a spiritual context, and you were shut down and told to sit down and be quiet. I want you to hear me say this. I'm sorry. I am sorry. This should be the safest place for us to express our doubts and journeys together into the truth of the gospel. And so if you have doubts, if you have questions, whether you've known Jesus for two days or 200 years, ask them. Express them. Search for answers. Jesus will meet you. Jesus will meet you. And sometimes he'll meet you through us. But you've got to express it. And I'm sorry if you haven't had the opportunity to do that. Jesus will meet us in our doubts and questions when we act in honesty and openness. Questions and searching are okay. When you have questions and are searching, express them, but then seek truth. Seek truth. Don't just feed your own bias. How easy is it for us to feed our own bias? You turn on Facebook and what's in your feed? Everything you already believe anyway. It's magical or dangerous or scary. I don't know what you want to call it there. But don't just feed your own bias when you have questions. Investigate. Be honest. Don't hang out in your doubt. Search the scriptures for yourself. Look for answers. That's part of owning your own faith. Listen to the testimonies of transformed lives. Let those testimonies speak to your heart. Believe the testimonies of those you know and trust, especially when those testimonies are shared with patience and peace. And then pray. Our doubt turns to faith in part through prayer. Pray for Jesus and the Holy Spirit to open minds, to reveal truth, that he would become known Obviously not physically, but spiritually and relationally. Pray that fear would not take root because of doubts. Doubts can lead to fear that debilitates us in our life. Don't let that, pray that that doesn't happen. Pray that the peace of God would flourish within your life. Pray for yourself, pray for others. And if you're one with doubt and you're struggling and you're like, I don't even know how to pray, it doesn't have to be fancy, it doesn't have to be eloquent, it just has to be a simple, God, show me who you are. God, show me who you are. Two sidebars real quick. Number one, some of you as I'm saying that may be thinking, that's all good, but what if their journey leads them down some weird path off to the side and, and they end out in crazy land? That's a fair question. There's a risk that could happen. But here's the thing that I know. I have faith in a God who is bigger. A Father who loves deeply. A Jesus who is alive. And a Spirit who is active. I believe there is only one truth that can be found for people who truly are seeking objective truth. That it's not relative, it's not opinion, but it's truth. And if people with doubts are truly seeking answers, that truth will come. It may take a while, and it may be messy, but it will come. 
Sidebar number two. Relationships and community are important in our spiritual journeys. We don't talk about the value of discipling communities just simply because we want one more thing for you to add into your already busy lives. It's because in the context of a healthy discipling community built on relationships in Jesus, that is life transforming because you can express your doubts and questions and walk through them together and share answers and pray together and journey through those questions together. You can draw people in who have doubts and questions and walk with them as they search for the living reality of God. That's why we talk about these all the time. It's important to remember that Jesus wasn't hard on Thomas for his doubts. Despite his skepticism, Thomas was still loyal to the believers and to Jesus himself. Some people need to doubt before they believe. If doubt leads to questions, questions lead to answers, and the answers are accepted, then doubt has done a good work. It is when doubt becomes stubbornness and stubbornness becomes a lifestyle that doubt harms faith. When you doubt, don't stop there. Let your doubt deepen your faith as you continue to search for the answer. And let me add to that, don't write people off when they have doubts. Doubt doesn't have to halt the development of our faith and the faith of others. In fact, it might even be a necessity. If we aren't asking the questions, is this real? Is Jesus alive? And we're blindly accepting things without understanding how deep is our faith really. In faith and in doubt, this is the story of Thomas. And this is the story of how Jesus compassionately interacted with Thomas and his doubt with patience and peace in his presence. As the worship team comes, I simply want to ask, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? What's the Holy Spirit saying to you? Do you have questions? Do you have doubts today? How are you handling them? Are you stuck in those questions and those doubts, or are you letting them lead you forward in the search for truth? Are you here this morning maybe struggling with the reality of Jesus' resurrection, wondering if Jesus is worthy enough to surrender fully to, wondering if the Father really indeed loves you just that much? We're gonna sing together. I'm gonna invite you to stand. As we sing this morning, I wonder, are you full of doubt? Are you increasing in doubt? Are you increasing in faith? Are you full of faith? Would you consider yourself half and half? Wherever you might be, would you acknowledge that this morning? If you need to come and pray at the altar, there's folks that will pray with you. And I would challenge you too, if you're here this morning, you're like, I'm good, I don't have any doubts, then maybe that you need to be investing in someone else. Sharing your story, including your doubts, praying for them, encouraging them, walking with them so that all of us may indeed know the deep love of the Father, the resurrected Jesus, and his worth in our life. Let's sing.